This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our episode comes from our most recent annual conference, Rebuilding the Economy After the Pandemic, Challenges and Avenues of Reform. We'll pick up from where we left off last and discuss urbanization and city planning with Patrick Condon. Mr. Condon received his Master's in Landscape Architecture from UMass Amherst and has over 25 years of experience in sustainable urban design. Patrick started his career in 1985 at the University of Minnesota before moving to the University of British Columbia in 1992. After acting as the director of the Landscape Architecture Program, he became the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments. As chair, he worked to advance sustainable urban designs in numerous neighborhoods in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Patrick has also led the Sustainability by Design Project by the Design Center for Sustainability. Mr. Condon has written a variety of books on sustainable urbanization, his newest release being Six City, Disease, Race, Inequality, and Urban Land. We were lucky enough to talk with Mr. Condon about different housing policies across the world, Georgia's land taxes, and how cities and towns can become more sustainable. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Well, hello, everybody, and uh, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the book. The book is uh, provoked a lot by the pandemic, and a lot of people are concerned by the pandemic, of course. What my concern might have been a little bit different than the slant other people have taken, because because of my work, it seemed uh, fairly clear that the brunt of the impact of the pandemic, and this is still true today as we enter the third year of the pandemic, the brunt of the impact of the pandemic falls on the shoulders of people who, for the lack of a better uh, categorization, are in, the, are in the service industry. In other words, they're medium to low wage workers. They tend to be uh, predominantly or, or largely from uh, disadvantaged classes, both economic and racial. Uh, this image here is a pretty strong indication of what I'm talking about. It shows you uh, where people are living in poverty on the left in the New York metro area or the New York City area to be more precise. Uh, and where, and compare that to the image on the, on the right, which is the image of the preponderance of uh, pandemic infections from COVID-19. The bigger the bubble, the larger the amount. And you can see that if you're lucky enough to live in the rich parts of uh, Manhattan, uh, you're, you're, you're less likely to have caught caught COVID-19, if you're unlucky enough to live in the poorer parts, you are more likely. And, the inter- and an interesting thing to, to mention about that 
is the places in the New York City metro area that are the highest density had the lowest incidence of uh, COVID-19 infections, putting the lie to the sense that this had to do with uh, the density of the city. It has more to do with the experience of service workers in terms of the number of interactions they have to have with people and very importantly, how many people, how many people they end up living together with in crowded circumstances. So hold that thought in mind because it comes around to land and land value, which is going to end up being the main point of this talk. This is one of those districts in, uh, in New York City that has the highest incidence of pandemic infection. And I'm sure it's not the one, it's not the one that you imagined. This is, a, this is a location with largely detached housing, uh, but the demographics of the area are they are lower income and they are brown and black inordinately and they work in the service industry. So hold that thought in mind, because now we're going to come around to affordability. And the rest of the talk has to do with essentially affordability. Uh, the issues for disadvantaged classes or people you may not consider disadvantaged, but who don't have above average incomes, which means basically people in the service industry, your hospital orderlies, your Uber, your, your, um, your taxi drivers, your bus drivers, your uh, custodians, your teacher's aides, even your teachers in many locations who have below average wages are struggling to find housing. And most of the, most of the conversation here in Vancouver, which is pictured, and even more so in the rest of North America, has to do with uh, the housing crisis being a consequence of not building enough housing. I'm here to tell you that Vancouver has 30 years of building more and more housing. All the housing you're looking at there has been built within the last 30 years, doubling the population of the downtown peninsula and opening up the rest of the city for uh, fourplex zoning. The, the, the lowest density housing we have in the city is fourplex zoning. A lot of new housing along our arterials. We've done basically everything, including legalizing uh, secondary suites, adding uh, authority for uh, lane houses in, in backyards, just about everything that has been, that can be done, that has been, that is currently being considered in the United States uh, to rectify this problem of perceived uh, that the cause of housing unaffordability is perceived to be uh, restrictive zoning, we've already broken down all those restrictions. And during that same 30 years, the price, when you measure it per square foot of finished interior space, the price of living accommodations in the city of Vancouver has increased by over 300% in real terms, while wages have not gone up one cent in, uh, in real terms over that same time. We have ironically got the lowest average wages in North America, and yet we have the highest prices. 
And, why, and while we have done, I believe, everything imaginable or most of the things imaginable to increase allowable densities, uh, the, the prescription, the assumption that that prescription would reduce prices is empirically uh, shown to not be the case. However, it has not, it has not interfered with people's faith in many cases, that well, if if we haven't, if it's if prices in Vancouver are still going up, the problem must be that we haven't built enough housing. So, the solution to the problem is more and more of the same thing, even though the evidence suggests that it's not working. The extent to that tragedy is shown here where there's a lot of information on this chart. The only two significant ones I'll point your attention to is the dark blue line that shows the average house prices over $1 million. This includes very small units and very large units. It includes condominiums and detached units as well. But the price is $1 million, which is far in excess of what the average person can afford. The average income line adjusted for inflation is shown as the brown line on the bottom of this same graph. And the number there on the upper right, 29, indicates for an average worker today how many years they would need to save up enough money for the 20% down payment that's required on even the most modest hosts. The situation is not uh, particular to Vancouver, although it's the most extreme example here in North America. This is the numbers from the United States that show the, the departure of home prices generally, even with the interruption of the 2008 Great Recession shown as the dip right here, that the trend line has stayed the same ever upward while salaries have not been able to, to match that upward trend. And in the United States, there are, of course, very extreme examples. The, the blue line that I showed you on the bottom is the same line as I showed you in the previous slide. That's the, the nationwide increase in the cost of housing. But the other numbers that there are the, the peculiar and particular increases in the city of San Francisco. And if you look at the major cities in the United States, particularly the, the coastal cities that are doing quite well now, from Boston to Atlanta, from Seattle to Los Angeles, you see this kind of outrageous uh, increase in average house prices. And again, bear in mind that very many people are saying, well, in the case of San Francisco, perhaps with some justification, at least there, that it must be because nobody is let, um, it must be because nobody's letting anybody build anything in, in their neighborhoods. The blame falls on the NIMBYs, not in my backyard. And uh, they are opposed by the YIMBYs, yes, in my backyard, who are, are debating with a, a high degree of hostility between those camps, uh, North America wide. So anyway, as was mentioned, most of this argument is contained in this book. I'll come back to it at the end of the conversation. But now I wanna move on to the issue of land price specifically. This is a map of the United States that shows by county uh, 
how many billions and in some case in some cases trillions of dollars that the land is worth and you'll note that the land is worth perhaps not unexpectedly a whole lot more where uh, the cities are but the drama of this disparity here is made more dramatic uh, by the following. The reciprocation here between these two images shows you in actual dollar terms, the difference between the wealth of land in the urban areas versus the almost inconsequential non-wealth of the entire urban area of the United States. The value of that conservatively estimated is at $30 trillion worth of land wealth. And if you want to compare the two together, you're free to do so. Okay. Uh, why is why is this land wealth hap why is this land wealth thing happening now and for you, for you for this audience unlike other people i talk to you're probably not going to be amazed by the things i'm about to say but certain individuals have drawn our attention to this issue of land wealth uh, for example thomas piketty who's contemporary and has become more and more concerned about the, the flow of asset value uh, away from wage earners and towards those people who already have assets. Uh, this graph is similar to graphs that, were, that he produced for a number of countries. This one happens to be France. And he's the first one to look over the hundreds of years and chart many things. The, this one chart you're looking at is the trends in asset wealth relative to national income, meaning by income wages. And that for a short period uh, between the 1920s and the 1970s, wages uh, were doing much better in comparison to asset value than they were before or since. His hypothesis, which the statistics support, is that the interregnum between a, a period where, uh, where asset values in countries were over 700% of wage value in any particular year uh, is, is on the return. And that's a way of looking at systemic inequality that is a global problem now. And what's interesting about that What's interesting about this asset value chart is you see that agricultural land, which used to be the most important asset category, has almost disappeared in value, while housing is the largest asset value, overwhelming the value of stocks or factories or, or cappuccino stands or whatever else, whatever else, what other all the other kinds of capital that you can imagine. <clears throat> and as a side note, this is really where uh, the relationship between Thomas Piketty and, and uh, Henry George starts to emerge. Before getting to our friend Henry George, 
I'll also show you uh, evidence of this phenomenon that is more uh, in its own way alarming than what I've already shown you. This is some information that was gathered by the American Enterprise Institute, which is not ordinarily a, a think tank that I, that I depend on being not a, not a free marketeer. But in this case, uh, uh, makes the argument for us around land value. They look, as you can see, with uh, they take the time to look at specific metropolitan areas to examine things like change in land price over a relatively short period. I'm going to show you a few slides that zoom in on this same data in this interactive. Uh, assembly of, uh, of uh, cataloging of land value. This is the one, this is the one for, if you zoom in, this is the one for Los Angeles. And it shows you the change in land price or land share. This is land share, as you can see on the left. You can see that the, the land share component of the areas in the dark red have increased substantially in only seven years. So there's a, there's a, throughout the United States, there's an increasing departure between the value of improvements now and the value of land. Land is inflating, but the value of the buildings are not. So this harkens back to uh, uh, an insight, of course, with this audience you're familiar with that Henry George first articulated, well, he wasn't the only one, there was also Adam Smith before him. Uh, but Henry George most famously articulated that um, the problem ends up that most of the value of all the activities in urban areas, both, both by the entrepreneurs and the laborers, ends up getting absorbed into land value. And because of that chart that I showed you previously, our generation of baby boomers, which is probably a lot of us in this group, have been able to discount that fact that Henry George articulated in the early part of the century, roughly around here, because the, according to Piketty, the cataclysmic changes that occurred between the advent of World War I, the Global Depression, and World War II created an interregnum where land values and asset values more generally went down. And this is the period of the emergence of the, really what constituted the global middle class, not just a North American phenomenon, but a developed world phenomenon where the middle class had access to assets, largely housing during that period at a price that matched their salaries. But we're, we're moving beyond that moment into a moment that's much like the 1890s or the 1910s is what this information starts to suggest. Now this one shows you, uh, I think even more dramatically, although the chart is a little difficult to understand at immediately. This is change in land price just between 2012 and 2019, and it shows you the dark red areas are up to 526 or more than 526%. So 
change in land value just in that time. And the tragedy of this is, if you know anything about Los Angeles, you'll note that this these lands tend to tend to correlate with the parts of Los Angeles where the lowest income people have traditionally lived. South LA, you know, Watts and and um, um, uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard and those those areas are the darkest red where the increases in land value have been the highest, go figure. Or in Georgia where some parts of Georgia right here, for example, there's been a 500, in this case, 575% increase in land value just in those same seven years. That's, that's almost 100% per year. In my own city of Vancouver, the different uh, different website, of course, uh, but this one shows you the change in building value, and it shows you that for the most part, building value has either gone down or gone up very little because the predominant colors are are red and these light greens. So the three hundred percent increase in our in our assessed valuations. Over the, over, the, over the course of the last 30 years that I talked about are not that buildings are getting any more expensive, it's that land is getting more expensive. Now, I think to this audience, that's kind of an obvious thing to say, but it's very surprising when I say this to other people. It's very hard to get the point across that the problem is not the cost of the building, the problem is the cost of the land under the building. This next map just isolates land value. Fortunately for us up here, we assess these two categories separately, which is not done everywhere, unfortunately. So you get a separate assessment for land value and building value. And you can see that this dark blue and light blue indicates changes in land value over the, over in this case, a somewhat longer period of 12 years that are sometimes as high as 300%. So the same phenomenon we're talking about, it's, a, it's ubiquitous. All you really need to know is this is really happening and it's not the building, it's the land value, which is causing the, house, the housing crisis. This is just details. You can click on any one of these, which is it's a great website. You can click on any one of these, uh, it's called mountainmath.ca. You can click on any one of these parcels and see what has gone on over time. And it doesn't matter if you're in a big building on a main arterial or a single family home, the, the dynamics appear to be the same. You get flat or even decreasing building value. And you would think with this high density building that the building would be more, more valuable than the land, but that's obviously not the case. The blue line is the land value. The green line is the building value. And it shows no particular difference between a, a, a very expensive, if you will, building on a major arterial which you would expect to be worth much more than the land. It's not. It shows no fundamental distinction between what's going on with the single family home areas where the land is so much more valuable, perhaps more understandably than in the other case. But nevertheless, the dynamics, the important point here, the dynamics seems exactly the same. 
All right, this is the part I get in trouble with all my ur urbanist friends and they think I've gone over to the dark side. Uh, for, for 30 years, up until 10 years ago, uh, I was arguing along with my urbanist friends, former friends in some cases, that, well, a solution to this problem, if it exists at all, is to just add density to the parcel. But through those decades of observation, I have observed and come to the unfortunate conclusion over those same decades, that if you add allowable density to try to fix this problem, it doesn't fix it. What happens if the city comes in and says, suddenly we're gonna rezone the whole city for fourplexes in the hopes that this will, or in the faith that this will reduce prices. The observed market information that comes as a consequence of that act is that there is no benefit in the per square foot price of new housing provided. The big change is that the price of the land, which has been recently reauthorized at, in this example here, at quadruple the original density, shoots up by the same, roughly the same percentage. If it was worth a million dollars before the up zone and you give it 400% more allowed density, it sells for close to $4 million. But the, as you see in the bottom number, the per square foot interior price in the city of Vancouver has not gone down. And of course, uh, I think it's obvious that what's happening here is that the real driver of the market is the value of that interior square foot. That is a, that is a globally determined value, $1,000 per square foot, roughly. Sometimes it's 950, sometimes it's up to 2000, but let's just use the 1000 number. It's set by the global market. And <clears throat> if you allow more square footage on a parcel, what happens is what they call the residual value of the parcel simply goes up and up in parallel with that new authority. This one doesn't require too much consequence, but it lays the foundation for coming back to the to the problems that uh, Henry George identified over 100 years ago. The gap between uh, productivity and real wages is a driver. And what, what's happening with all this additional money that's not going to the wage earners? And it has no place else to go but into, you know, you might buy, a, uh, you might buy your own jet, but the, that jet is an asset. It goes into asset value. It goes into stocks, bonds, and enormously now into real estate. And it's such a relief to be talking to, to this group, so I don't have to spend any time really talking about uh, uh, Henry George's insight, but the Henry George insight was that when you get a situation like this, where the entrepreneurs and the workers are doing a great job in terms of creating a great city, the problem is that the lion's share of that, that um, newly created value goes into the, the value of the land, 
or real estate value, but it it is effectively just into the dirt. It goes into the dirt, and that and that that land passively absorbs, as you well know, uh, up to the point where it can threaten the economic stability of the metropolitan area. It will absorb it to that point and beyond, leading in some cases to, to local crashes. What we're seeing more nowadays, given that we live in a globalized economy, is that we're no longer seeing uh, real estate crashes on the local or even national level. We're seeing them on, in the global and international level when this gets completely out of hand. And many are hypothesizing that that point is where we are right now in the midst of this pandemic. So that's that's kind of the bad news. The rest of the conversation here is a little bit of good news. Uh, Henry George uh, was very influential in Europe and his influence extended uh, into uh, Vienna, which is the case study example. Now, I don't wanna overemphasize his influence, but it was there. He, uh, he provoked a conversation about land value and all the things we're talking about at a point where no one could afford to live in the city. They were sleeping 30 people to a two bedroom unit. I mean, the, the details of it are, were incredible. A socialist government came in when the Habsburg empire collapsed and they were newly authorized to think of different ways to attack the housing problem. So partly inspired by the recognition that the problem was land price, they taxed heavily the, uh, the apartment buildings that were already there. And as a consequence, drove down the value of those apartment buildings in terms of their resale value and were able to recapture that money in the form of those taxes and use that value to go out and buy urban land at, at a price that they had through their own taxing ability driven down. Because it became less profitable to have an apartment house, the land that was appropriate for apartment houses and indeed the apartment houses themselves became less valuable. So it was a neat trick and it was the Henry George trip basically of, of driving down land price and taking that land value and using it for social purpose, in this case for housing. This is an example from the 1920s that was built, still beautiful building, still occupied obviously, such that now 50% of the housing in the, in the city of Vancouver is non-market protected housing. Uh, an interesting side fact to that is that the fact that there's over half of the housing in Vienna is non-market housing has moderated the tendency of the market sector to inflate such that you can buy a market condo in the city of Vienna for roughly half the price of, a, of, a, of an equivalent market condo in Berlin or in Paris or in Milan, for example. The strength of the non-market sector is adequate to hold down the inflationary land price spiral, even on market units, which inspires, which inspires me to be somewhat confident about some of the changes that are occurring globally, really, but I'll focus on the United States uh, for a moment. 
in places like Cambridge where they have a new policy. Uh, it's called the affordable housing overlay policy, which I mean, that's out of order. I'm sorry about that. Which basically covers the whole city. And it's a separate zoning ordinance. It says we, it basically says you can double the allowable density, but only if 100% of that, that, of that, of those new apartments is affo are affordable. And they have established clear definitions of what they mean by affordability. A certain percentage of the new units have to be uh, affordable to people at 80% of median wages. Another percent has to be affordable to people at 50% of median wages. And another percent has to be affordable at 30% of median wages and below. And those people are presumably supported with section eight housing vouchers to make, to make the numbers work. Now, how can the number, how can those numbers work? The way that the way the numbers work is that the nonprofit corporations went to the city of Cambridge and said, you know, we'd like to provide uh, housing that's affordable. And we understand that you're willing to add density in the city in the hopes that that will make things affordable, but it's not. The problem with that is when you add allowable density, our peers in the market sector rush in and buy that land at an elevated price, which they can afford because the return on that price eventually will be sufficient to pay off what they had to pay for the land. So it doesn't help us if you increase density in the absence of anything else because the land price just becomes unaffordable and we can't make the numbers work. But if you only allow that density to nonprofit providers like ourselves, who agree with a housing agreement to provide in perpetuity housing that's affordable to people of average incomes, then it will not inflate that land value. There may be a problem where uh, the landowners who hear that the density has been doubled ask us for higher prices, but the truth is we can't afford it. And if you can, if you can clear the market of the market speculators uh, and the market entities, the market housing providers who are coming in who will pay that inflated price because the market value of the eventual units is such that they can, uh, they can pay those inflated prices. If you can clear the field of, of, of those entities, then eventually that land will be offered to us at prices that we can afford and thus, we can give out uh, units at rents that average wage earners can afford. And the, and the ordinance specifically links this, that if average wages go up, so too can the rents go up to exist for existing and new projects. This is exactly what has happened in Vienna. It's exactly the strategy of removing a percentage and hopefully an ever increasing percentage of urban land out of the market such that it's no longer uh, available in the sense that Henry George uh, described to 
passively accept all the gains that are provided by the collective activity of all the workers and all the entrepreneurs. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a device of separating that. Now for this audience, I really wanna emphasize something important. You all know that this Henry George's single tax strategy was not widely adopted. And in places where it was adopted, sometimes it's been reversed. It's very difficult politically to go in nowadays and say to a city like Vancouver and say, well, because Henry George says a single tax is the right thing to do, we're going to tax your property, not at 1% or 2%, but we're going to, we're going to tax it at, at, at 7, 8, 9, 10% of its sale value every year. And it will be nice if, if, uh, if your income tax goes down at the same time, but we can't guarantee that. You see the political difficulty we find ourselves in, and this has been a reason why it, in my view, has not been broadly adopted. But what I'm talking about, which is not generally talked about within the conversation of Georgists, is a much, is, is a strategic, uh, inspired by Vienna is, is it a, a strategic attack on land value at the point where that land value is about to be capitalized on. You constrict its new capital value by not allowing new authorized density increases in the absence of asking for an affordability to go with that. And the affordability requirement will extract for the present and the future that particular parcel of land from the vagaries of the of the of the of the land market, which Henry George correctly identified as the problem. We must all remember too that during the period when he was discussing this and his friends in the his friends, the economists who became very enthusiastic, and as well as the the people who advanced the progressive movement in the United States operated at a time before we even had zoning. All that activity happened prior to 1920s. And it wasn't until the 1920s that zoning was, was largely instituted and uh, was uh, authorized through various Supreme Court challenges. A restriction on land value through zoning was very controversial at first, but now we have this power. And as you can tell, I think by my voice, it frustrates me very, very deeply, frustrates me enormously that we are not recognizing that the, that the, the avenue out of the problem of the housing crisis is not to just willy-nilly increase authorized density, without it asking for anything in return, that just feeds the beast. That just pours gasoline on the dumpster fire, which we can already see is raging in the examples I've provided. We have to do the reverse. Uh, the way to affordability is not to increase density, but to, but to cap density or even ideally reduce legal density and then only allow density increases for affordability. Now here's, I'm a designer and I came to this through, 
through being a designer. And I think the other thing about the Cambridge model, which is very, very important is the design issue. Uh, it took them four years to get this authorized. And during that four years, they had to convince all these neighborhoods that they weren't gonna ruin their neighborhoods with new housing projects. You know, housing projects have got a terrible name in the United States because of the devastatingly awful projects that were built in the 19, uh, late 1940s and the 50s and 60s. Uh, they're just terrible places and they had to, uh, and Cambridge had to overcome that, uh, that fear because Cambridge actually has a number of really bad housing projects. So they had to work with neighborhoods through design workshops to build the trust of those neighborhoods that through, the, through seeing these examples and, and being convinced that the policies were capable of producing design quality and that it wouldn't, these new buildings at double density wouldn't be out of scale uh, in their neighborhoods, that they would accept the idea of having double density for affordability. And one of the things that I think is happening now in the United States is affordability is no longer conceived of as the other, those other people, those black or brown or violent people, which is the pejorative way that in the 60s and 70s, housing projects were seen, not entirely without justification. Now that's not the case. Uh, the case now is that over 50% of Americans, no matter what color they are, are stressed where if they're, if they're, if they're my age, their children can't afford uh, housing. So if they don't have access to the, the, what we call the bank of mom and dad, they're not going to be able to afford housing. And, and the cohort who are feeling that stress is much broader than the 10 or 15% that it used to be. It has expanded enormously. So you have a different political circumstance now, I think, where more than half of America's citizens understand already that there is a housing problem that affects them, or if not affects them directly, certainly affects their children and grandchildren, which, which is a different conversation. My concluding comment then is that, you know, I, I, obviously there's a level of frustration uh, in my articulation here today that what I've come to see is a fairly simple a, a diagnosis of the problem and set of solutions, which is constitutionally authorized and hurts nobody, but the land speculator has not been fully embraced. And I hope that perhaps uh, people like yourselves with the broad theoretical background in this issue that all of you come to this argument with can help help me advance this case, me and a few others advance this case uh, nationally when we have the opportunity. And the good thing about the good thing about this is that uh, this this argument can take place at the local level. You don't have to affect national policy, although it would be nice to make this work. What you really have to affect is local zoning policy, which is always at the municipal scale. And I'll leave it at that. And thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. 
If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.